Thank you for listening to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder, the goal of this podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea. On some episodes, members of the Amplius team will discuss a topic or idea. And on other episodes, we will invite an outside guest that has some particular insights or expertise. We really hope you enjoy the show. And like always with Amplius, if you have suggestions as to how we can make things better, please let us know. As a reminder, nothing on this episode should be taken as legal, tax, or investment advice. Tax, legal, and investment advice topics should be discussed one-on-one with the appropriate advisor. Thank you. Welcome to episode 12 of the Wealth Amplifier podcast. Joined today, I'm Matt Liebman, joined today by the usual suspects, Aaron Marks, Patrick Swift. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be here. So what we're going to do today, because we are recording this on Halloween, and hopefully we will drop the episode uh, somewhat close to Halloween, um, is we're going to do, we're going to throw out some topics that in theory or in practice could be scary from a market and financial perspective, investment, financial planning, et cetera, and dissect whether we think that they are scary or not. We have not prescripted this, so we may have difference of opinions on some of these. Um, Did want to mention that we are trying to keep this, let's say, a little lighter and from a market perspective. Obviously, from a humanitarian perspective, there's plenty of scary stuff going on in the world right now, which we have uh, certainly alluded to in, in other communications, but this will be purely from a financial and market perspective uh, today. So with that as a backdrop and a segue, uh, war and terrorism. Uh, let's start light. Start light. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, there's plenty of, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, plenty of that going on right now. So purely from the narrow focus of one's portfolio, their financial plan, and so on, uh, what do you two think is... is uh, in it, with the theme of Halloween, are war and terrorism something to be scared of from an investment and financial perspective? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, the short answer, in my opinion, from a financial perspective is no. Um, if you look at the research around wars in the past, uh, certainly some have been far more disruptive than others. And there have obviously been economic and, and market reactions to wars or conflicts. Um, a lot of times they're short-lived and um, unfortunately in the multifaceted economy that we, that we live in today, there are going to be benefactors too from, from times of war um, defense stocks, companies that obviously do better when they're producing uh, equipment that are used in wars. There, there are, there are uh, benefactors for however you want to look at that. So no, but from a financial planning standpoint um, and the way long-term investors, I think should be, you know, looking at their portfolio strategy, a, a war for the most part, you never say never. Um, it, it's not something that you should be making, you know, knee jerk changes to your long term investment strategy for like a lot of things that we talk about. Yeah, it, it will change dynamics of the market like um, inflation and um, supply chain issues with, with Russia and Ukraine. Like that, those have real effects on the markets. But look, every war has ended, you know, depending on your perspective, I guess. And, who you're, what perspective you're, who shoes you're sitting in, but they all end um, and things pass. But in that short term, yeah, there, there's stress. Um, there's uncertainty around a lot of things, but in the end, like all things, they do pass and it's good to stay grounded during those times. Yeah, so 
couple things I, I just add there. I, I don't disagree at all with the general thesis that you shouldn't disrupt your long-term financial plan or investment portfolio um, b based on um, uh, conflict, war, terror, et cetera, um, except for the fact that I think it re-emphasizes the point that we make a lot from a portfolio construction and financial planning point, and that is number one, make sure you have enough cash and or let's say reserve assets available to ride through tumultuous times because they may not end uh, very quickly. Uh, and then two, uh, sort of from a uh, uh, from a planning perspective, and I'd actually more say from a risk perspective in, in your portfolio, I think and not to go all cliche that everybody always uh, uses the Mike Tyson quote on, on risk in portfolios where uh, what's his line, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. But I do think a lot of times someone who thought they were an aggressive investor, when you see you know how ugly things can get in a hurry, all of a sudden realizes maybe they weren't that aggressive uh, to, to begin with. Maybe, maybe they're not comfortable with that. So I think trying yeah. to have as much advance notice of that as possible um, is, uh, is, is helpful. Yeah, good point. Um... And maybe to tie the bow on this particular topic, uh, I was just looking up some uh, historical performance of, of capital markets during periods of war. Um, the numbers that I'm about to utilize here are not inclusive of uh, the Ukraine conflict that we've seen and, or the most recent one in Israel. So most recent one is includes the Iraq war. But if you look at uh, U.S. stock performance, one month, three months, six months, 12 months after a war or conflict started dating back to World Har uh, Pearl Harbor. It looks like there's 12, 13, 14 different events here. Um, one month later, you're positive about 1%. Uh, three months later, 2%. Six months later, 5.5%. 12 months later, 8.6%. So percentage of the time, look at the 12-month later period for what it's worth. Um, the stock market was positive about 75% of the time, 12 months later, which is pretty much on par with history. If you looked at any... Yeah. point in in time and roll forward the stock market calendar one year stocks are usually positive between 70 75 percent of the time so pretty much on par with uh you know normal times if there are ever such a thing in, in stock markets that, yeah, that, so, that's a good point though though are there ever normal time are, or that yeah, these are normal times it, yeah. there's always the extent extenuating circumstance but there's always something to be scared of and i guess that's the point of this conversation yeah. Yeah. And so again, just to, to summarize the first topic, uh, generally speaking, some things you can do to prepare, but nothing um, that we would do uh, to dramatically change financial plans or portfolios relating to, to war or terrorism. Obviously, the humanitarian side, and we, we uh, as we mentioned at the outset, have, have people very, uh, very close to this one uh, that we're keeping a close eye on. But, but this is purely from a portfolio standpoint. Uh, it is, generally speaking, a stay the course uh, situation. All right, Pat, what's the next one? Uh, next one, we've got a few few different one here, ones here. we got higher interest rates. Um, been a theme for the last 18 months, almost two years now. What uh, Should people be scared, spooked by <laughs> higher interest rates for a longer period of time? All right, I'm going to go, I'm going to play counter on this. One. I'm going yes. Um, so not, it's not a... Um, Let's say not a complete fear. There are there are solutions, but the if if you want to take fear as the idea of should I do anything, and we just went through one where in most cases, if you have a good plan in place, you shouldn't do anything uh, to change things in, in in the case of war or terror. Uh, higher interest rates for longer 
I think does have to change things, whether that has been like one thing we've done the last couple of years. We've kept our bond portfolios very short duration. Uh, that is not take much interest rate risk because we thought rates may go up because they were uh, they were so uh, they were so low. Uh, had we taken the no fear attitude on that, we might have just had a very long term portfolio that that would have gotten hit pretty hard. Similarly, I, I think on the planning side, uh, you know, when, when rates are low, uh, I think the idea of any borrowing locking in uh, long term at a low fixed rate uh, generally can lead to some pretty good things on a plan. But if they're going to be higher, you have to reconsider some of that. So uh, I, I just think interest rates are such an integral part of all markets and planning in the economy that that it's hard not, not maybe maybe fear is the wrong word, but it's hard not to at least pay attention to that. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's not so much being scared of them, just being aware of them and acting appropriately. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I guess where I would go on that one is like, what, what was the old Jack Bogle thing uh, from Vanguard? Uh, uh, don't do something, just sit there. Uh, I, I think that applies to a lot of situations, but I would not apply that to higher interest rates. Whether that's a fear thing, you're, fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I think uh, outside of capital markets, just to talk about how we as consumers in the economy <clears throat> interface with higher interest rates. It, it kind of depends on like when you were born and where you're at in life. Um, look at all three of us, right? Like you two both were able to purchase homes during a period of lower interest rate housing, um, which is which has probably helped in general. Whereas a lot of folks who are entering their, you know, your home purchasing years, um, you know, it's 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 a tough time to be uh, buying a house with higher interest rates. I think one of the things that almost no one would have predicted, but it kind of makes sense in hindsight, like a lot of things is if if 18 months ago, you looked at home prices, which were still elevated from the pandemic, and you said, hey, interest rates are going to go, you know, uh, 400, 500 basis points higher on mortgage rates. And but prices are going to stay exactly where they are. People would have been like, you're crazy. Higher interest rates are going to make prices go down. And it hasn't. Now, does that have a huge effect on the economy? Well, I don't think it does yet because most homeowners, I think the quotes of the numbers I've seen are like, you know, two thirds to three quarters of homeowners in the U.S. Um, are, are, have purchased homes like prior to the pandemic kind of thing. So they're probably sitting in their houses with, uh, with low interest rates. So there's no reason for them to sell their house and their prices are staying higher and that kind of thing. Um, so I think it, it takes a little longer for the housing market to break from higher interest rates because people are locked in almost what you were saying, Matt. But I think what you are starting to see and, and could be concerning or something to be scared of is like you, you're seeing it now with auto loans. Auto loans are at crazy high clips. People buy cars more frequently. So that's going to start to trickle through. I saw credit card delinquencies are up a little bit more from even the financial crisis, which is uh, something to pay attention to. So yeah, I think from a consumer standpoint, it takes time uh, for that stuff to trickle through, but but it will. Um, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't help the consumer when it when it comes to spending. So so how about thinking of it from this perspective? So being a part of a herd, everyone making the same decision, the same move, going in the same direction, it, it you feel comfort and safety because you're surrounded by everyone else doing the same thing. But a lot, a lot of time in the investment world, you have to do things that are scary or what seem. Like they might be scary because it's different than everybody else. So I'm not saying that this is the right move for homes and interest rates, but it, it does uh, create some nerves. 
Everyone's buying houses or maybe not buying houses because they're afraid of where rates are. Well, maybe you should buy that house now, lock in your rate and be confident that rates are going to be lower and re refinance down the road. And it ends up being a good time to buy a house now because in five and 10 years from now, they're going to be that much higher and you bought at the right, right time. Whether that exact illustration is right or wrong, just the point of going in the opposite direction. And, and Matt, like you say, everything always reverts to the mean. Don't do one thing because everybody is doing it get out of your comfort zone with the long-term perspective and make what you think is going to be that right move which yeah. is scary can be scary it certainly can be scary and and i do think along those lines i generally agree with 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 the premise i mean look real estate at the end of the day is in another is a different form of a fixed income investment and when do you want to buy fixed income when rates are high or when they're low generally you want to buy it when rates are high uh, you know, at, at, at that point, the only thing I will say on on interest rates is I do think there needs to be a mind shift, uh, like it, it, mindset shift is what I was trying to say um, on on rates for this time, meaning, you know, they always say what this time is different, the four most dangerous words in finance. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to say this time is different in the sense of we've seen this before. It's just been a while. Uh, and And what I mean by that is we've had basically two decades of lower interest rates. And every time the markets or the economy got a little nervous, the Fed would come in and slam interest rates back down to zero or become or do other mechanisms um, to be more accommodative. I think they've been pretty clear that they're not going to do that this time. Doesn't mean they'll never cut rates. They will at some point. But I do think the range and the world that we're in has changed. Uh, and, and so I, uh, the only reason I mention that is I think that you're going to see people maybe go too far the other way and say, I'm going to load up on this because rates are going to be cut soon. And they may just wind up being disappointed. So general thesis, I agree with Aaron that you got to lean against the, the crowd a little bit. Uh, but but I think the other thing the crowd is maybe doing is assuming that rates are going to be cut uh, slash pretty low. And I think that, that they may well be disappointed there. Yeah. Yeah. And on that mindset shift, just to maybe tie a bow on it too, is I think um, this is a good example of like, nothing's ever certain. And I think when you hear from whoever is making points, whether it's in the media or in a headline in a Wall Street Journal article that, okay, higher rates here to stay, higher for longer, we're going to have, um, you know, stock market returns will not be what they've been over the last 15 years. Sure. That, I mean, that, those are all um, fair points to have, but they could be flat out wrong. I mean, just no one, no one knows the, what the actual answer is going to be. Does interest rates on the risk-free treasury at four to 5% over the next five years, that mean stock market returns will be negative? Like, I, I, one, I have no idea, but I don't think you can draw that conclusion with certainty because markets are never certain. So I don't know, just a reminder that uh, you can't read into something saying, this is the resume we're in now. And as a result, X will equal Y and equals right. Z. And that's not how it works. So. Um, yeah, stay vigilant. Well, that is a perfect segue for the next one, which I'll throw to Aaron here. Um, we've had to Pat's point, uh, we've had multiple years of subpar returns in the markets. Um, some have certainly had a bear market last year. Uh, some have questioned whether we're in a new bull market this year, or it's just like a bear market rally and how much of that may be a distinction without a difference. But anyway, um, should people be scared of the fact, investors be scared of the fact that we've had a couple of years in a row here of, of subpar returns? You can be scared if um, you're retiring tomorrow and you haven't had a plan. 
I think when you zoom out a long time, uh, really look big picture, everything normalizes and those lower returns for longer calls might be in a short time span, but things again, revert to the mean over time. So yeah, I, I think you could, you could have some uh, unease if you're not prepared, if you are prepared and you're going to have subpar equity returns. Okay. Well, where else can I go? Are there alternative investments, real estate, structured notes, treasuries that can help me uh, accomplish my goal? Because when we all talk about subpar investment returns, we're usually talking about equities. But there are other things out there. It doesn't just have to be that. So yeah, it creates some uh, unsettling feelings, but don't have to be scared of it. Yeah. I would say from a, a passive investment philosophy standpoint, which is nuanced, like Matt has made uh, great points about in the past, that even when you're a passive index investor, you're not always a passive investor from the decisions you're making. Uh, one, my point is, uh, from a financial planning standpoint, is exactly what Aaron just said. The, the main... And maybe only time, if I'm looking at someone's lifetime of investment returns from the time they're fresh out of college to passing wealth to the next generation, um, the probably most important time or periods of time in your life where you need to be worried about subpar returns are, are at retirement. Your sequence of return risks, there's a lot of research around it, where if you've got bad returns your first few years of retirement and you haven't planned well, that could be a recipe for disaster because you're, you're going to need to start withdrawing money. And uh, that could compound on your portfolio over time. So yeah, it's as simple as make sure you got a plan in place, right? Uh, make sure you have the cash and uh, pieces of your portfolio that are available for you to utilize and, and make your retirement work for you um, w without you having to draw down from your portfolio that might be losing value. So you can, you can weather those years. It's a pretty simple equation, but yeah, you need some, usually some professional planning around that concept. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's something you need to be scared of, but it's something you got to plan for, for sure. Yeah, no. And I think, I think you both make good points, especially on, uh, um, Aaron's point about, um, the, uh, other asset classes. You're right that it does feel like when people talk about subpar returns, they're usually talking about equities yet for the last three years, we've basically had the worst bond market performance. Not we, we've actually done you know, reasonably well, not to talk about performance and toot our own horn, but the bond market itself uh, has had a really lousy couple of years. But the result of that is maybe there's some appealing things in bonds right now. Uh, so, so it's all is not lost. You know, the uh, even and we've talked about this before, but even the lost decade in equities, which I don't think we're we're in the midst of having another. But who knows? As Pat said, you know, we, we don't know. But even during the quote lost decade of equities, uh, the first decade of this century, uh, there were plenty of things. That did quite well, even within the equity market. It was just the top line indexes, uh, particularly the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq, that had that had a rough decade. But value stocks did well, small caps did well, bonds did well, and, and certainly the foreign stocks at times. So, uh, so yes, I, I, I do think we need to. Uh, we always try to have a global, broad horizon, but but certainly uh, when you're subpar periods, you need to look uh, a little a little broader. Yeah, I, I agree, and. So we're coming up, we're getting closer to 20 minutes. We do have a few more here, but I think if I could, I think one that would be great to hit on uh, in um, almost in advance, because I guarantee, and it'll be the same people that we've spoken to about this for the last few cycles, elections, presidential election. It's coming up. <laughs> it's happening next year. Everyone's going to be concerned about it. Everyone's going to be worried about it. We're going to be asking about, hey, I'm going to sell my stocks because it's a presidential election year. Can we hit on that? Can we hit on that one? And, you and talk you about know what it? I'm going to start keeping track of? I haven't heard it yet. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna keep keep a tally. If this person wins, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> They're moving wherever. Nobody ever moves. But I'm gonna I'm gonna keep. I think over or under ten people that I hear. I say definitely over. If this person wins, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. So I, I think on the on the election one, it's interesting. I on, on one hand, I fully agree, and on the other hand, I, I disagree slightly. I'm not even sh- sh- say sure I should say disagree because I haven't heard your view on this. But in general, when I hear people say like, if this party wins, it's going to be bad because of tax policies. If this party wins, it's going to be good because of spending policies. Or you know, fill in the blank. I tend to be skeptical of that. Uh, I'm not saying that those things don't have an impact and that that, that certainly policies don't have an impact, but we have such divided government. It's really hard to put in place massive uh, fiscal policy changes, sometimes to our detriment because we have some really bad fiscal issues that we're not addressing. But uh, I do I'm not as concerned about that. That said, um, I think it's fair to say that if you go back, let's say, 12 years, so 2024 elections coming up. Go back to 2012 when you had incumbent Barack Obama running against sort of, let's call him measured Mitt Romney, a fairly uh, accomplished, smart and innocuous person, regardless of whether you like his politics or not. That's a fairly different election from where we are now, uh, where we have a, a, you know, an unpopular incumbent just going by the polls, not making political comments, uh, going against, um, uh, you know, a guy. A, a, Guy that uh, has, uh, let's say, some baggage to put it lightly, and not going too far in, into the down the political hole. Um, and there is also a lack of trust in the election results from big parts of the population that we have not seen before. So that kind of stuff does actually scare me more. Almost like the debt ceiling, uh, you know, scared me more. The, the problem with it is there's only so much you can do about it. Uh, you know, I, I can't make the election go smoothly. Um, and we, and to Aaron's point, like. We sort of have to um, design portfolios and plans as if there will be a future. But I'd be lying if I said I'm not scared about it because that, that that stuff uh, d- d- does scare me a bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're 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 spot on, and it's the same thing we're talking about. There are reasons to be scared, and there's totally justifiable um, um, factors in play that uh, make us all feel anxious. I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't agree with 100 percent of what you just said, Matt. Um, but for what it's worth, and I'll I'll give the same kind of data I just gave on the on the first topic we we used. If you look at again U.S. stock market returns during election years uh, dating back to uh, 1928, uh, this doesn't include 2020, but we we do know what those returns were. So 23 elections here, in four of those, did uh, stocks finish negatively? Uh, so stocks had a negative return in four out of 23 of those election years. Um, so Is that right? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I guess I'm, maybe yeah. I'm a little scarred by 08, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, but that's a good point. That's actually was what I was going to say is if you look at the years in which stocks were negative during election year, the most recent one was 2008. And it drives on the point I was going to make in that presidential elections and really political events in general are not really what drives markets long term. It's the economy. It's things that are going on that affect Markets and in 2008, we had quite a few things going on that were affecting markets negatively outside of the presidential election. So if you look at stock market performance, almost 100% attributable to the fact that we had a major financial meltdown on our hands, and not the fact that Barack Obama was becoming president. Um, 
Fair. So yeah. for that, for what it is, most of the time you're looking at positive returns. And again, that's regardless of Republican versus Democrat. In fact, if you look at the average returns under a Democrat versus a Republican, it's between 11 and 12% for both of them. So there's really no, the, my, my point is the market doesn't care what, what color tie they wear. Um, <laughs> so maybe let's just, you know, so when we get all these questions next year, let's just remember it's okay to have feelings, opinions, and be negative, And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, let's just remember that, you know, the market for the most part doesn't seem to care long-term. So let's just try and keep that in perspective and not make, you know, major uh, knee-jerk decisions on investments. All right. So why don't we shift to our two closing segments? Uh, Aaron, do you have some articles uh, for us unscripted to uh, react to? I do. I, I feel like the article cycle has been so serious because of the serious world we're in right now. I haven't had a lot of good entertaining fluff ones to bring up. But I got, right. I've got two. One's definitely on the uh, investment financial planning side of things and one uh, more market related. But uh, Panera Bread founder, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, says most CEOs end up regretting taking companies public. Ooh, what do you think? Pat, you Sorry, can start us off. Say it again. I, I was uh, uh, I CEO was, of Panera Bread, but irrelevant. Yep. CEO, random person says most CEOs end up regretting taking companies public. Hmm. How do you feel about that? Um, I, I well, I've never been a CEO of a public company, but I would say um, I would guess there's probably some recency bias. Like maybe he's got a couple of bad uh, uh, earnings calls that he's had to deal with. <laughs> and like, you know what? Like no one enjoys this spot. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I would guess. It probably depends, right? If someone was only ever a public company CEO, they probably they don't have the perspective of I was once a CEO of a private company. It's probably I would imagine if you nuanced the data down a little bit more and you asked CEOs who have been both in public and private companies, there's probably a bias to being private because you don't have as much capital market and uh, stock market earnings calls to answer to and expectations and that kind of stuff. But um, if you're a public company CEO who's been successful in your career, you, you maybe not, you maybe don't mind it as much. Right. And, and you might say, look, I, I, uh, done really well from a compensation standpoint doing this stuff. So I'm good with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that, but. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly seen fewer, we, we I think, I don't know the exact stats, but we have fewer public companies as a, as a percentage of, you know, let's say large companies there are a lot more large private companies now. And some of that was low interest rate environment and these big private equity companies raising firms and taking companies, raising funds and taking companies private. But I also, I guess my knee jerk reaction to that is I wouldn't underestimate in either direction, the role that ego plays in that. Uh, to, to, to Pat's point there about like, I think a lot of people, sometimes they have great private companies that are doing well, but no one knows who they are. They want the splash of the IPO. And I'm, I, like, I think ego plays a non-zero part in that. And then all of a sudden you're public and you're listening to like seven analysts tell you why you're bad at doing your job. When you founded the company, you build it from scratch and so on. You're, I think your ego plays a role there. Like, who are you to tell me that? But like, that's part of being public. So uh, I, I think ego plays a big role in that in both directions. Good reaction, guys. <laughs> Good reactions. Um, all right. Next article. Uh, um, don't buy a home as an investment, says CFP. It's just a roof over your head. <laughs> um, I'll react to that one if you don't mind, Matt. Go for um, it. Part of me does agree with that. Part of me does not. Um, I do think 
for some people, let's talk, because this is it's a little bit of an ambiguous quote, but if you're talking about your primary house, investment merit cannot be the only thing that you consider when you're buying your primary home, right? Because you're hopefully spending a bunch of time there. So you need to be, ha- like there needs to be a qualitative and quantitative element here. You don't want to, you don't want to, no one ever wants to feel like an idiot when they buy a, a, or make a major financial decision, whether it's buying a house or anything else. So you definitely want to feel like, okay, I'm not going to take a bath on this or I bought it at a bad time or whatever. But at the same time, generally speaking for your primary home, if you're buying it for a long period of time and uh, hopefully there are other factors at play there. Am I going to be happy here for a long period of time? Am I going to be able to raise a family here for a long period of time? Am I going to be able to have a community that I'm happy in for a long period of time? Like those factors, in my opinion, on your primary home should definitely outweigh if I, am I going to double my money in 20 or 30 years on this house? Um, cause that you probably do. Okay. If you're in a house for 20 to 30 years anyway, you're not going to hopefully lose value. But, um, uh, yeah, if you're talking about a secondary residence or an investment property, absolutely. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about investment. Yeah, there, different story there. Primary home. You, you, there are other factors at play that should certainly outweigh the financial, uh, you know, implications. Well, Excuse the pun, but this one hits home uh, a little bit. Uh, yeah. uh, I bought a home a few years ago, sold a home a few years ago, and now I'm renovating a home now. Um, couldn't agree more. It's a roof over your head. It has all kinds of returns that have nothing to do with a financial return. Uh, it's good, in, our, in our case, good for the kids. We like the neighborhood. We like the house. All these things. But when I break down the money that we have put into it, uh, you know, it's not going to be uh, my finest investment. And if any clients are listening, you better hope that that's not my finest investment or we're all in trouble. Uh, but uh, but yes, I, I no, I, I agree. It's generally a good investment, bad investment, who knows? But it's I, I, I think that should be a very limited uh, reason for buying a primary home. And I agree with both of what you said about rental properties, vacation homes, that, that then maybe it's a little bit more of a combined reason. Yeah, I can agree with you both more. Uh, the, one, the one thing I'll say is when you're in the moment of buying and selling, it is that that ten thousand dollars that you're when you're selling a house, trying to get you know on top of what the the, the seller or the buyer is offering, or if you're buying a house, trying to get ten thousand dollars lower, it is the most important thing in the world. And and you know at least for me it was, and really a year, two days later, six months later, a year, two, three, it was irrelevant. Right. Yeah. The market will do what it's going to do. If you end up selling that house in five, 10, 15 years, you'll never remember that $10,000. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you guys. Yeah. So a uh, good one, Aaron, way to find two uh, uh, good, mostly innocuous topics in a time when there are, there, there's a lot, as you said, a lot of heavy stuff out there uh, uh, and so on. So to, to uh, wrap us up here, uh, each of you, and then I'll do the same, just highlight uh, one or two things you're reading, watching, uh, seeing that, that you found interesting recently. I uh, just watched the series finale of Billions. Mm. I don't know, we haven't talked about that much. Were you guys watching? I've been behind on it for a while. I won't so give anything away. I haven't watched in a couple of seasons. When Axe left, I left. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, a, a lot has changed over the years. Always had a, I, When I get to the end of a series... You know, I think this one was maybe seven years. I, I do feel like yeah, you're you're losing a friend. Like, oh man, uh, but it, it was a good one. I enjoyed it. It I think it went off the rails for a little while in one or two seasons, but they brought it back home strong, and uh, it was a good finish for anyone who's uh, interested in continuing on. I think you should. 
Good, good hallmark of a show, right? I, I empathize with that. You finish something that you've invested time in. It does feel a little bit like emotional. You're like, ah, oh, like losing this like important part of my life. Um, hallmark of a good show for, for sure. Um, I'll keep it Halloween themed. Um, I'm a big, I, I love the Halloween season. I love October. I like the weather, scary movies and stuff like that. Um, I watched a Netflix series, The Fall of the House of Usher recently. Um, it's in fact, for anyone who is familiar with the series or the director, the director, Michael Flanagan, for the last four or five years, every year has come out with like a Halloween themed show on Netflix. It's the same cast, same characters, but different plot and diff totally different stories every time. Um, so this was the fourth or fifth in his, like, since they started doing them on Netflix, uh, fall of the house of Usher. Um, I think it's the second best. The last few have been a little subpar. The first one he did, the haunting of Hill house was like awesome. I thought, um, and then this one, this one was really strong too. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. It was really good. And if anybody's in the mood for a spooky, uh, you know, fall type vibe show, um, two thumbs up worth it. Good to hear. Um, well, I'll barbell mine too, because uh, these uh, taken a lot to heart over the last month. These have been heavy times. And I was looking for things to get my like my face out of my Twitter feed just to like watch something. So, on the lighter side, um, what's the show? I've been watching it with uh, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, um, not the, newsroom. Um, the, the, the HBO one? No, Apple TV. Um, a morning show morning show thank you thank oh, yeah you. so i watched the first couple of seasons it was okay the third season is so absurd yet somehow it's so unrealistic it makes me feel happy because it's like in some fantasy world because it's so bizarre and and, <laughs> and ridiculous so i've been watching that and then i've been trying to read like a book uh you know rather than uh, just read twitter all the time and i tried a couple that were like i was trying to read walter isaacson's book on kissinger it's like a thousand pages and like i i just i don't have the the capacity so i'm shifting back in the other direction i've read a number of books on israel over the years but a new one just came out from dan senior who wrote the book startup nation that was very successful and uh, right. a friend of mine just sent me this yesterday she happens to be friends with the author um he co-wrote this it's called the genius of israel uh so i will likely uh, pick that up and put down kissinger uh which is the kissinger book's really good if you want to like lift weights because it's like it's a heavy book but uh yeah. it's uh but but uh so that's that's my barbell one one uh, very topical and serious and the other just like an obscene ridiculous tv show nice well matt <laughs> if you want another book um that's a little lighter and uplifting but also good for the psyche i would say um rick rubin came out with a book called the creative act rick rubin the super famous music producer i don't like think the I'm beastie boys guy and all the, the, the oh yeah like the famous culture yeah, yeah, like the, every band guy oh, i was gonna say the right, yeah, okay, right. everybody yeah um, early days for beastie boys he's done like everybody since then yes, yeah yes. <laughs> it. he wrote a book creative act i think it came out in january i read it actually recently um it's very like meditative short chapters that kind of talk about like your mental state of being when you're trying to create things, which let's face it, everybody in every industry, whether you're an artist or not, you, you do create a lot of people, they create stuff, they create dialogue, they create products, whatever. Um, I thought it was great. It was very like chill and like, you know, maybe a centering kind of thing. It was, it was a good sort of psychological book to read if either you guys uh, are looking for something. Cool. All right. Well, with that, we will wrap up just uh, as an aside, we, we had promised last time that we'd have a guest on our next episode. We had some scheduling issues, so we uh, that one will be coming up soon. But uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, we'll be back again in a month. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Appreciate it.